Thank you, Brother Tom. I appreciate you so much. Uh, Open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Tonight I want to continue the subject that I began last week in talking about Christians standing straight in a crooked world. This theme that we're discussing is the practical application of the doctrine that Paul expresses in verse number 12 of this chapter where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a very perplexing doctrine unless we really understand what Paul means. It's not a statement that in any way says that we can work towards our salvation. It doesn't mean that we can do anything to maintain our salvation. But it is a statement that God wants us to demonstrate uh, outwardly what he has implanted into our hearts through regeneration. Salvation is complete in one sense when we speak about the initial phase of it. At the very moment that we trust Christ, we're justified by our faith, and then we're as fit for heaven as we will ever be, right that moment when we trust in Christ. And yet there's also a sense in which the Bible teaches that our salvation is ongoing. And that's because our lives are continually being conformed to the image of Christ, And when the Bible tells us to work out our salvation, that is this process of being conformed to Christ's image. So it's God that works in us to complete that process. And it begins at the very moment that we place our faith in Christ. And it goes on all throughout our lives until we're finally glorified and able to be with him. So this process that God is working in us is not something that requires or Uh, us to sit passively by and to be completely inactive as God works in us and just performs some kind of an operation where we're automatically conformed to Christ's image. But the method that God uses to accomplish this is to involve the person. He, He requires our action. He requires our work. And that's the means by which he brings about that conformity. So God enables us to do. He doesn't enable us to sit. So these next verses that we're going to discuss on this subject is advice about what we should do, how we are to act, what our attitude is to be as we're working out our salvation. And that's the subject tonight and the subject of these uh, verses that we're going to read, verses 14 through 16. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look at God's Word, I do really actually want to back up to verse number 12 and start there, and then we'll read down to verse number 16. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come here tonight and we're so happy that we're able to come out on Wednesday night, the first one of this new year. We can think about your word and Lord, learn something here that will help us through this week and just bridge that gap between Sunday to Sunday. We just thank you for Wednesday nights and the people who are able to come. Bless the message that we preach tonight. Lord, just open our hearts to your truth. May we learn something here that will help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
Let me review just for a moment uh, the first point of the message that uh, I preached last week. First, we were talking about the insolence of believers. In verse number 14, uh, Paul points out two ways that he says that a believer can show insolence towards God. Now, when I speak of insolence, what I'm talking about here is discontent. And discontent is a sin because that's when a person uh, really begins to think that uh, he says to God that I'm not happy with my life. I, I don't like where you put me. I don't like what's going on. I don't deserve the treatment that I'm getting. And so a person begins to argue and dispute against God. And this is the two ways that Paul points out in this scripture uh, that, we are, that we show that insolence against God. One is murmuring and one is disputing. Now, murmuring, first of all, is an emotional response of discontent against God. It's really what we call an affront to God because this is something that challenges God's sovereignty. I mean, God who rules all affairs, God who plans and purposes for our life, God who knows all contingencies, God who works out all things for the good of his people. It's an affront to God to dispute against him or to murmur against him because these things doubt God's wisdom and his direction that he takes us. The second of the two ways that Paul mentions insolence or speaks of insolence is uh, demonstrated by that word disputing. And disputing is the intellectual response of argument. It goes beyond murmuring. This is when you begin to formulate an argument against God. You begin to articulate that argument. And that's when you say, I know more about what I need than God knows what I need. And so I present that argument to him. I think things ought to change. Well, the practical outworking of our salvation is, first of all, to stop all of that. I mean, to stop all of these things that are attempts, really, to usurp God's authority. What God commands, we do. Where he takes us, we go. What he says, we listen to. We know that God always knows best. And grumbling and argument can be solved by just stepping back and looking at God's character, remembering God's concern for us, and remembering God's cause. And that cause is to conform us to Christ. So God's never out of touch with his people. He's never indifferent towards us. God always has a plan and a purpose for us. So point number one in the sermon was a negative point. It's don't show insolence. Stop murmuring. Stop disputing. Quit complaining. Because all that does is hinder God's purpose of conforming you to Christ. Well, now we go on to verse number 15, and we take up something that's positive here, because next Paul speaks about the innocence of believers. In verses 14 and 15 again, he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, Paul shows us that when we have dealt with the negative, and we've got the negative part of this out of the way, that enables us to develop the right kind of character. When we put ourselves totally into God's hands and we accept that whatever God does is righteous, it's holy, and it's just, that's when the character of Christ begins to show through. Christ's character, of course, was to do the will of the Father. In our lessons on the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8, Christ demonstrated his willingness to subordinate himself to the Father. His will and God's will are one will. But what Jesus was willing to do was to uh, subordinate himself to God the Father and to put God in charge of his welfare. And all of that was a view towards his exaltation. 
And so by obeying the Father in humility, he would be exalted to the highest position. Well, what was Christ's character while he was on the earth? Paul mentions for us here two characters, uh, characteristics or two qualities in verse number 15 that are indicative of Christ's character. Now, the first one he uses is the word blameless. He says that we are to be blameless. Now, this is talking about the external part of man. We're to be externally blameless. And we could boil that down to a simple statement that to be externally blameless is what others believe me to be. That's the integrity of a Christian life demonstrated outwardly. That's what others believe me to be as they look at me, as they look at my life, as they see how God works through me. Now, as Jesus was the Son of God, and in him was found no reason for rebuke, there was no real reason ever to criticize him, so we are to be the same. And that's because we're also sons of God. We're children of God, and so we're to have a character that's like Christ, a life that's without blame. Peter puts the onus on us in his scripture as he writes, and, and he compares our lives to Christ when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, For what glory is it? If when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, Jesus was certainly unjustly accused. And no matter how hard we try, there are people that will misinterpret what we do. They'll mistake our intentions. And many times, just for spite, they will accuse us. But if they do, they shouldn't have any just cause to do so. Now, an accusation may be made, but when it comes down to the proof, the real question is, where is the proof that what you say is right? And this is exactly what Jesus said to those who accused him. He said in the book of John, Which of you convinceth me of sin? I say the truth. And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? When it came to a lawful, just examination of Jesus, when all the evidence was weighed in the correct manner, the verdict about Jesus' life is stated three times in Scripture. When Pilate examined him three times, he said, I find no fault in this man. Now that is the pattern for us. The pattern is Christ. And as the pattern for humility is Christ in verses 6 through 8 of this chapter, so also the pattern for carrying out our humiliation should be just like his. That means no murmuring, no disputing, but bearing the shame of Christ, the same shame that he was willing to bear without reproach. So what's the practical application of it then? Well, it's for us to be externally moral and to have no just cause for rebuke. This is the outward integrity of a Christian. And so that means in all things that you do, whether we're talking about work or, or home or recreation, fellowship, whatever it might be, in all of our activities, there should be no evidence for rebuke. Now, that takes work. And this is what he means when he says, work out your salvation, because what, what, what happens here, this means no more lying. It means no more cheating. It means no more gray areas in your honesty. And it means no more moral slip-ups. Now, Paul tells us in a little bit different way how to avoid accusations. He says, don't just stay away from things that you know that are wrong. He says, don't even get close to things that you know that are wrong. That's really what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. 
But even with all that effort that you put in, there are still some who will, will accuse you, and you will be blamed. Not even Jesus, living a perfect life, escaped the accusations. The Apostle Paul, who writes this, he didn't escape the accusations. So it's going to happen throughout your life. People are going to fire blanks at you all of the time. And what you don't want to do is foolishly give them some ammunition to shoot at you. So we need to be blameless, as he says here. So that's the external demonstration. And and that external part of us, what we do, that has to be very carefully guarded. But Paul doesn't stop with that because you will be falsely accused. And there are only two people who know really the absolute truth and the one that matters most who knows is God. God knows what you are in your heart and if you're truly blameless he knows that and if you're just pretending to be blameless he knows that. So the next word that Paul uses is one that guards against hypocrisy and this is the word harmless. We are to be internally harmless. Now that is what I know me to be. The prevention of external hypocrisy is to be inwardly harmless. Now, let's don't be confused about the word harmless because it doesn't mean here a person who doesn't hurt other people. Now, certainly you ought not to be somebody who hurts other people, but that's not the meaning in this verse. And it's not the meaning when Jesus used the very same word in Matthew chapter 10. It wasn't an admonition uh, for people not to hurt other people. But he says this in Matthew 10 verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents corresponds to the word blameless that we used just a moment ago. A serpent knows how to keep himself out of compromising situations. He knows all of his vulnerabilities. He knows when he can be put into danger. He knows how to protect himself. And so he stays away from places that unnecessarily would expose him to any kind of danger. That's exactly what a Christian has to do. He protects himself by being blameless. But then Jesus follows that up and he says, harmless as doves. And what that means is not exercising deceit. It means to be innocent without admixture. In other words, your life is not to be some good things that you do, also mixed with some evil. Romans says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So outwardly, you can't be good when there's evil that's lurking in your heart. So Paul puts this word here to show us that we're not to be hypocritical. In my inner being, I am to be harmless. So that's what I am in secret. I'm not up some kind of a front uh, and living a double life just so just to fool people and you know i'm afraid there are many christians that do that very thing they're involved in some kind of sin that they want to hide and so they come to church and and they work in the church as if nothing is wrong and secretly they're being eaten up on the inside by their hypocrisy you know that's really a problem in a world that allows us to cover up sin It used to be that if you were going to be involved in certain kinds of sins, that uh, you had to be very careful about it if you didn't want anybody to find out because you might need to go to another town, you might need to go to a place where people don't recognize you, and if you wanted to get into sex and pornography and things like that, you would go somewhere where you're sure that nobody knows who you are. And so you'd go buy that magazine or whatever it is or, or go to some club or something and, and, uh, and go there because nobody knows who you are. 
Well, now it's much more simple than that because all you need to do is turn on your television in the, in the privacy of your home. You can get on your computer and you can surf the web and you could go to a thousand places all over around the world that engage every kind of purient interest that you have. You see how careful you have to be? How much you have to guard yourself? You only knew, you know what's on the inside. And being harmless is to be innocent inwardly and to guard against the hypocrisy of showing something different on the outside. Now, if we had been writing this, if we sat down to write this, we would probably take the opposite tack that Paul takes. Rather than moving from the outside to the inside, we would do the reverse of that. We would start on the inside and say, well, you work on that first, and then you work on the outside. But we have to remember who Paul's talking about here. Now, if he's speaking about salvation then certainly he would start with the inside. There's no person who's not a Christian who can clean up the outside and make things right there while there's evil that's lurking on the inside where there hasn't really been a change of heart. But Paul's not talking about salvation in these verses. He's speaking about living a Christian life. He's talking to Christian people. So he starts with the outside here because eventually what we're going to get to as we finish up here tonight, we're going to get to the idea of testimony. And testimony is what you are on the outside because that's, only, that's the only thing that worldly people or uh, lost people can see. All they can see is what you are on the outside. And so that's where Paul starts because his object here is to deal with things that are, that are uh, of most benefit to Christianity in general and, and winning people to the Lord. So you have to be careful about that outside. But every one of us sitting here tonight who is a Christian, we know this. We can't stop with the outside. We most definitely have to work on the inside because with all of our best efforts to cover up something that's wrong on the inside, eventually the outside is going to break down and we are going to be exposed. Now, probably the greatest example that we have in this was David. Uh, David was a saved man, but there was a time when he tried to cover up a heart of lust. And you remember the story of David and Bathsheba that when he called Uriah back from the battlefield, looking at that from the outside, it looked like David was very concerned about Uriah's welfare. He appeared that he was doing the best thing for Uriah, but that didn't work. And soon David's sin required multiple facets of cover-up. And if you're not careful with your life and what you are on the inside, you'll find out that you'll get tangled up in a web of deceit. David found out what Moses said what he meant when he talked about this 500 years earlier. He said, be sure your sins will find you out. And Paul wrote something similar in the book of Galatians when he says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So these things will catch up with you. We have to be externally blameless and internally harmless, innocent as the sons of God, so that we give no just cause for rebuke. Now, as I said... The argument that Paul is making here in this scripture comes down to that of testimony. We must stand straight in a crooked world. So the next thing that we have here then, our lives are, are concerned the implications to, believe, to unbelievers. Our lives are going to affect unbelievers. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that... I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. 
Now, let's take just a moment here to discuss Paul's description of an unbeliever. Let's look at the unbeliever's character, the character of unbelievers. Now, our character, he says, that's to be blameless, it's to be harmless. And in both of those areas, the character of the world is the exact opposite. So the world, first of all, these people are externally crooked and they have twisted behavior. Now, the outside of a lost person sometimes will have a modicum of morality. That's self-generated, though, because all of us do have a conscience. But Scripture tells us that our conscience is defiled. And so there's always that crook that's there. Some people, that crook is more pronounced than it is in others. It's interesting that the word crooked that Paul uses here is the same word from which we get scoliosis. Scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. You can't stand up straight with a crooked spine. Well, in man, the curvature spiritually is that bent that he has towards evil. And that's the very reason that no person can ever come to Christ with, without an operation that takes place in his soul. He has to be regenerated in order to believe because he always has that bent towards evil and he can never overcome that naturally. God has to do something in him first. Well, the twisted behavior of man in compa- is in comparison to what he should be spiritually. Now, man was created upright, but with Adam's sin, all people who came after him were born with this curvature. All of us have that bent towards evil, and it manifests itself in twisted behavior, meaning that we have a bent away from God. Now, that is evident as we look at Adam's first two sons, Cain and Abel. Now, Cain was not regenerated, and so his twisted behavior resulted in the murder of his brother Abel. But Abel was a righteous man. He had righteous character, and his character was displayed in right behavior. And so what did Abel do? Well, he brought the offering that God required. He brought a lamb of the flock for sacrifice. So he was blameless. He was standing up straight, but Cain was twisted. He was bent. He was crooked. And everyone who is without Christ is in that same condition. Well, as Christians... We're not to display any of those former characteristics that we had, not, not, not following that bent that we had towards sin. Now, the second word that he uses here uh, to describe a believer is the word perverse, and that's the opposite of harmless, and it refers to what the person is internally. So they are internally perverse, and they have a distorted nature. It, externally, they have this twisted behavior And that's the result of what they are internally. They have a distorted nature. Now, the nature of man was changed in his fall, and it's his internal nature that actually uh, keeps him from acting right in his behavior. You see, there's nothing physical in man that keeps him from doing what's right. You can take a lost man, and he can get down on his knees, and he can pray. He can walk up and down the street and he can invite people to go to church. He's able to walk down into the baptistry and get baptized. He can come to church and eat the, eat the bread and drink the grape juice and take the Lord's Supper every day of the week if he wants to. But what he can't do is he can't do any of those things for the glory of God. And that's because his nature is against God. There's no spiritual life in his nature, and that's because it's corrupt and it's dead. So he has no sensibility at all towards righteousness. So man's incapabilities are not physical, it's spiritual. And as long as a person is spiritually dead, he can never reach out to God because he has no ability to do so. 
Now, that's what we teach and believe. And, and I think that that's scriptural, and you find that it's real, and, and that doctrine is on nearly every page of the Bible. I think you see it right here, even when it's not even Paul's intent to talk about the depravity of man. And Paul makes it evident here because that's already presupposed. And that's why he's able to make just a single statement here that we are to shine as lights in the world among people who are crooked and perverse. They have twisted behavior and they have a distorted nature and we're not to be like them. But here's the thing that we need to remember. And that is that God uses means to reach them. And we are his means. The light has to shine to them. And the way that it shines is that God uses us. It's God's intention for us to be the ones who are the light that shines into these people that are crooked and perverse. So we see their character. Then the next thing that Paul wants to point out here is our commission. We have something we need to do. We're to shine as lights in the world. Now, it's true what God could do. He could just open up a sinner's heart, and he could shine in the light of the gospel, and that person would be saved, and it wouldn't take any intervention on our part whatsoever. He can open up the sensibilities of a person to the, to the gospel light any time that he wants to. He doesn't really need us to do that, but God hasn't chosen to do that. His method of working is to use us, and this is part of what he says when he says, work out your salvation. We're to be a light that others can see. So then what are we to do? Well, number one, we're to reflect the light of Christ. We're to shine as lights in the world, but we're not to be a self-generating light. We're to be a reflecting light. Now, in our solar system, we have a sun that through chemical processes is able to produce heat and light. But then there are other bodies in the solar system that reflect that light. They don't produce any light. They're just reflectors of it. The moon is a reflector, and it's not a generator. When Moses went up on the mount into the presence of God, he absorbed the light of God's glory. And then when he came down from the mount, the people remarked at how his, how his face shone because he'd been in the presence of God. He was a reflector of God's glory. And that is exactly what we are. Now, we haven't been up on a mount like, like Moses was, but folks, we have been in the presence of God. And so we need to shine with God's glory. We're to be a light to the world so that they can believe. That's God's method of reaching them. So he doesn't open up and shine into the light, shine in the light without using us. Now, remarkably, there are people who disagree with the doctrine that we teach, and they have to admit, finally, that God does work with individual purpose, and he doesn't work indiscriminately. Uh, on our website, if some of you may have seen this, but I have a... Uh, response that I wrote to someone who disagrees with us. But this person said something that was totally amazing, and it fit the Bible perfectly. He made a statement that's worth repeating. It says, even if a person gets saved by simply reading the Bible, a host of humans were involved in the centuries-long process of writing, translating, preserving, protecting, printing, distributing, and financing required to propagate Bibles in general, that that one Bible in particular should find its way into the hands of that one specific person. That is what we preach unreservedly. Without hesitation, we believe that. We're God's instruments to reflect the light of Christ in a multitude of ways. It may come down to just printing a Bible and then handing that to someone 
And then God takes that and he opens up their heart through reading of the scriptures. It can happen that way. But you know something? It doesn't often happen that way. Instead, God's means of reaching people is through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Most of the time, almost all of the time, that's the way it takes place. So, so we have to be involved in this. God doesn't, again, just open up and give them understanding. We're involved in the process of reaching people with the gospel. So what are we to do? Number two, we are to reprove with the word of life. Verse 16 says, holding forth the word of life. What is that? Well, that's nothing other than preaching the gospel of Christ. That's the word of life. And so the ordinary means of salvation is not just people reading the Bible. God can open their heart by that method if he chooses, but that's not ordinary. The ordinary means is preaching the gospel. It's witnessing. It's reaching people. Now, a good case in point is a message that I preached back in November. We were studying about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And here is this man who's reading God's word. He's sitting in his chariot. He's reading Acts, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 53. And that is just a wonderful, marvelous text about the sacrifice of Christ. I mean, the, what Christ would do on the cross of Calvary. But he's reading that and he doesn't understand what he's reading. So what did God do? He sent him someone. He sent him Philip. God knows the exact place, the time, and, and the person that needs the gospel. And God knows how to reach one specific person. And so God sent Philip to reach one of his chosen ones who's reading the word but doesn't understand what the word says. So what did Philip do? He held forth the word of life. He preached to him Jesus, and that man got saved. Now that's what we're to do. We're to hold forth the word of life. We're to share the gospel of Christ with others. But don't you think that the context here actually indicates that there is another way as well? And in this particular place, it may very well be the primary meaning of this text, and that is we're to reach people by working out our salvation by being blameless and harmless. In other words, here it comes down to the testimony of our lives. Our lives will actually reprove the world. How do we do that? Well, we reprove the world by our contrast. If your life is the opposite of crooked and perverse, then when you put a straight edge up next to something that's slightly bent, then it shows how crooked the other line is. You know, I remember back when I was in, in high school, I took a drafting course. And back in those days, uh, you didn't have CAD programs, computer aid design. And uh, so you had to do all these things by manually, by hand. Uh, so you had a drafting board, you have a T-square. And if you want to draw an arc or something like that, you have to have a compass or a protractor. And so it's not like today where, you know, they just take the computer, they key in the, 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 the angles and the lines and everything they need, and the computer spits it out. Back then, you had to do everything. You had to, you had to, you had to make all the lines yourself. Well, what you could do, you could take a piece of paper and you're going to make a drawing and you can freehand that drawing if you want to. But as you do, your lines start to get crooked. So if you want to get a good straight line, what you did was you took a piece of paper and you squared it up on your drafting board with the T-square. And then after you got the paper tacked down and got it all square, then you slide the T-square up the side of your drafting board and you draw a straight line, a perfectly straight line. If you need to make a perpendicular line or an angled line, you take something like a plastic triangle or a, or a, a metal triangle and you set it on that T-square and then you draw a perfectly perpendicular line if you need a 90-degree angle. 
Well, when you started to do that, all of your crooked lines would really start to show up. I mean, you could tell just how bad off that you were, and that's because none of the crooked lines are true to the standard. Now, that is exactly the way it is in a Christian's life. Your free lines, the free lines that are out here in the world, the things that are wrong with people start to show up when they're measured up against the standard. What's the standard? Everybody knows the standard is God's Word, and the standard is Christ's life that's lived by God's Word. Now, the Pharisees, they they didn't really like that because their best efforts, everything that they could do, was still nothing but crooked lines. The Romans didn't like it. The people didn't like it. And folks, people won't like you either when you start exposing the crookedness of their lives. They don't like something set up next against them, measured up against them, that shows just how really crooked and perverse that they are. But what do we do? Well, we don't stop. We don't stop because people don't like it. What we do is we continue on because there are some people who will be won by the reflection of that light. When we live Christ's life, when we act like Christ, then we show those crooked lines, those perverseness of these people that are without Christ. So what we're to be is a light that shines in a dark place, a huge contrast between our life and their lives so it exposes their works of darkness, their wickedness. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Men love darkness rather than light. And so when you stand up next to them and you're a Christian who is what you're supposed to be, you will expose their works of darkness. Now the world, as we said last week, is a very dark place. It's crooked and perverse. And what it really needs is some people that are blameless and harmless and that shine as a light. Now, let's notice then the last statement that Paul makes in verse number 16. Paul is teaching the people what to do, how to act, how to have the right attitude. And then he says, when all of that is accomplished, then he will rejoice because he knows that his labor is not in vain. Well, every minister of the gospel of Christ desires the very same thing. We come and we preach the word of God every week because... We want changes to be made. We want to see people's lives to become what they should be. Now, God richly rewards his ministers. I have no complaints about how the church treats me. They take care of all my material needs. But the greatest blessing for a pastor comes in the spiritual realm and not the material realm. And it comes by knowing that your labor is not in vain. And how do I know that? Well, I come on a Wednesday night and all of you are here and you listen to God's word and hopefully you take God's word and it does something for you and that means that the labor is not in vain. That's the best blessing that a pastor could ever get. Now, here's your last statement for tonight and make this your earnest prayer and sincerely hope that you do. Make my life and my church a lighthouse in a dark corner of California. Your conduct your behavior, your conversation, everything that is about you, it all figures in to the way that you work out your salvation. And only those who are blameless externally and harmless internally can really show as lights in the world. You're the only ones who can be a light to a crooked and perverse nation. So let's be a Christian then. Each of us, let's be Christians that stand up straight in a very crooked, perverse, darkened world And let's give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to be here tonight. And thank you, Lord, for your word. 
I pray that your word would have an impact in all of our lives, that we might understand that we need to be the people that you require us to be. And as we begin this new year of 2009 uh, with a Wednesday night sermon, we're so thankful that people have come here. And this is a group we know, Lord, that can be the kind of group that shines in a very dark world. And evidences in their life that they know the light, they've been to the light, they've received that light, and now they're that straight edge that shows those crooked lines that are out there. Lord, I just pray that all of our lives might be that way, that we might win people through our witness and also by the testimony of our lives. Bless in this invitation, and I bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.